Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. That's right. We are back. I'm here and you are here. This is episode nine. Welcome to it. Thank you for continuing to listen to the podcast. On this episode, we are going to be wrapping up the conversation between George Washington and Brian Fairfax and that conversation that they had ongoing. Uh, It's not going to be quite so animated as episode eight was, but uh, George Washington is going to draw it to a great conclusion for us. And then we'll be moving on to the next set of correspondence. We're going to be moving beyond Brian Fairfax and on to the next thing in episode 10. And this is real history, everybody. Real history. Uh, in this day and age, real history is hard to come by uh, in, in many cases. Because the, stu- the study of history, I really think the study of history has been has been lost. It's kind of it's kind of been abandoned in many ways. There's going to be a lot of people who work in the history department of some university or something that's going to be like, oh, no, Roman, I tell you what, history is alive and well. Really? You think so? <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't think uh, I don't think the study of history is alive and well. But guess what? Together, you and me, we're changing that, and we're gonna we're gonna bring we're gonna bring history back to life, and we're gonna make it uh, interesting to study history again by way of this podcast. Because there's a lot of people who I think want to know this information. They may they may not have time. They don't have time to research the letters. They don't have time to read the books because they got to work. They got careers, they got lives, they got families. They got to go work uh, 10 hours a day in some cases, 12 hours a day, 8 hours a day. Work and work and work it. That's why I do this work for you. I go out and I find this information. I pull the letters for you. I summarize the letters for you. I give you a good discussion around the letters, and I provide it to you. Makes it real easy for you. And it's going to make it real easy for uh, everybody else out there who might get some... uh, value out of this podcast. So if you know anybody, go ahead and share it with them. Thanksgiving's coming up, by the way. Good opportunity for that. A lot of people are thankful for the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, freedom and liberty. Probably less and less people with each passing year. But um, there's certainly still a lot of folks out there who are grateful for that. Uh, So go ahead and uh, spread the word about the podcast. Say, hey, you want to know a little bit more about where that Constitution came from? If you want to know a little bit more about where that Declaration of Independence actually came from, fire up this podcast. Good opportunity. And uh, I certainly appreciate the audience out there doing that. We got uh, folks all over the country listening to the podcast at this point. I see the numbers come in. I see the location information coming back for where people are listening to this podcast from. We've even got some overseas, Germany and Japan. And I thank you. And if you're interested in another podcast, I just dropped uh, another episode of the Patreon's podcast. Uh, patreon.com slash podcasts with Roman. Just uh, put one up a few days ago about the British Empire. Good discussion on the British Empire. So check that out if you're interested. And I don't know how long this podcast is going to be as of uh, I'm recording this intro. It could be this podcast ends up stretching on for more than an hour. I I don't know about that. We'll see how it ends up. But uh, if it ends up being more than an hour, that's not going to be a a new thing I do where these podcasts last more than an hour. I'm still going to try to keep it, you know, under an hour. But I got to wrap up this Brian Fairfax, George Washington conversation so we can move on to some other stuff. Either way, we'll, we'll finish it up here today. If we, if we run a little bit long in this podcast, and that's that's fine. It, it is what it is. So uh, we'll get into it without further delay. Again, this is uh, wrapping up our uh, conversation here between Brian Fairfax and George Washington. Let's get into that right now. 
Yes, here we go. Let's wrap up this conversation, and we're going to start off here with a letter from Brian Fairfax to George Washington. This one was written on August the 5th of 1774, and I quote, However, I am inclined since the receipt of yours to think I am mistaken about the plan determined on at home. You have no reason, sir, to doubt your opinion. It is I that have reason to doubt mine when so many men of superior understanding think otherwise. It has, in fact, caused me to examine it again and again. But if I was not convinced of an error, it appeared to me that it shewed as much cowardice in a man not to maintain his opinion when real as obstinacy to persevere in them contrary to conviction. Mr. Williamson told me the other day that he found afterwards that there were a great many of his opinion in the courthouse who did not care to speak because they should, because they thought it would be to no purpose. And it may be so, because a person present when he was telling me so said he was at the meeting and did secretly object to some of the results but could not speak his mind, end quote. So when Brian Fairfax here says he has reason to doubt his opinion, quote, it is I that have reason to doubt mine when so many men of superior understanding think otherwise, end quote. He's referring to his petition. His idea for a petition, instead of a non-importation or more aggressive approach as Washington would propose, and apparently as a great many of the folks who are gathered in Fairfax County would think also. But then later on, he continues talking about these uh, other individuals who are of like mind possibly with Fairfax, but didn't want to speak their opinion. They were not inclined to speak their opinion because they were seemingly greatly outnumbered by uh, the folks who agreed with Washington. Now, frankly speaking, I don't know why they wouldn't speak their opinion. You know, in a situation such as this, even if you're, even if almost everybody is of a contrary opinion to you in regards to a course of action, when you're gathered as a committee or as a county, as in Fairfax County here, uh, you speak your opinion. You know, sometimes uh, a singular person with a, with a contrary opinion can really add some good counsel to a discussion. So if, if these people were of a different mind than the majority at uh, Fairfax County, they should have spoken their mind. They really should have. But continuing on, quote, The next person whose opinion I heard was Mr. Williamson's, and the next, Mr. Henderson's. With this difference, that the Bostonians ought to have destroyed the tea, but should have sent home the payment for it immediately, but that the government could not avoid taking the steps, he joined with me an opinion that the people of Boston were blamable in their behavior in other respects. And when I expressed my concern at the bill, then talked of for altering their charter, he observed that the measure might be necessary considering the factious conduct of the people. They have all along appeared to me to shew a different spirit from the rest of the colonies. And if ever we have a civil war, I think without some check, they will be at the head of it. And I can't conceive anything worse for America at present. I know not whether Mr. Henderson told me this in confidence or not. In case he should, I beg that you won't mention his opinion, although he, did, he didn't reserve this caution. End quote. So this is a conversation again. We return back to the Boston Tea Party. This destruction of the tea in the harbor. And I, I said it before, I'll say it again. I'm, I'm actually of, of a mind to agree with Fairfax and his, apparently his friend Mr. Henderson here in part, not in whole, but in part. They should not have destroyed that tea. It was destruction of property. You don't do that unless you're willing to pay for it. So in respect to what they refer to here, where he says, quote, that the Bostonians ought to have destroyed the tea, but should have sent home the payment for it immediately, end quote. 
I totally agree with that. If they're going to destroy the tea, they have to pay for it. 100%. That's just the way that it is. Now, this la- this next section where he talks about altering the charter, I wholly disagree with. And I'll say, I'll quote it again. Quote, And when I expressed my concern at the bill, then talked of for altering their charter, he observed that the measure might be necessary considering the factious conduct of the people. End quote. Totally disagree with that. You cannot change the charter of a colony because of the act of a few rabble-rousers throwing some tea into a harbor. That would be akin to, let's say, the central power of the United States at the federal level abolishing a state constitution because of some act of destruction of property on the part of a few rabble-rousers within the state. That is, that is beyond the authority of the federal government to do. You cannot do that. It's a little bit of a different situation. It's a little bit of a different situation, but it's similar. And that he justifies he justifies the opinion as follows, quote, And if I if ever we have a civil war, I think without some check, they will be at the head of it. And I cannot conceive of anything worse for America at present, end quote. And again, we refer to it as the Revolutionary War, but in this particular context here, they, they obviously, from their perspective, refer to it as civil war, which it really was. So Fairfax has been canvassing for opinions on this issue, and there seems to be a group that thinks these people in Boston are largely rabble-rousers who are, you know, they, quote, shoo a different spirit from the rest of the colonies, end quote. And there's some justification. There needs to be a check on this rabble-rousing behavior. Here's the problem with that. The Intolerable Acts, this isn't just a check on a bunch of rabble-rousers in in Boston. This is, we, we went over the Intolerable Acts. This was a comprehensive series of acts meant to shut down business, shut down trade in and out of the port of Boston, restrict the let the representative assemblies of the people of Massachusetts and the people of Boston, amongst other things, and, and affect the charter of the, the colony of Boston. This is all very extreme as far as an action goes. And Washington talked about this prior in one of the letters that we read, and he's going to talk about it again here later. If there had been some demand for restitution and an appropriate discussion and arbitration of sorts made with regards to making restitution for that tea, prior to committing to these acts, that would have been a much better course of action for the parliament. It would have been justified asking for restitution, that is to say payment for the destroyed tea, but they didn't do that. They didn't engage in any kind of substantive, long-form arbitration to get compensation for the tea, restitution as they call it. Instead, they just kind of blow right past that on any meaningful level and skip right on into doing these acts. That seems to be Washington's opinion, as we're going to read about again here later. And Fairfax clearly sees trouble brewing, something bigger than just a non-importation agreement. This is the second time that he's mentioned civil war, at least the second time in these letters he's mentioned civil war. So he sees he sees a storm brewing on the horizon, and he seems to think that this is the worst thing for America at present. He may be right, but it may be unavoidable. Of course, we know, in hindsight, this thing is coming to a... Uh, this thing is coming to a head. A year after this letter was written, the colonies will effectively, at least the colony of Massachusetts, will effectively be at war with Great Britain. We're coming up to it. It's not very far away. And I think Fairfax sees that, and he wants to avoid it at all costs. But he refers to the people of Boston as, as you know, factious, seemingly having some extreme conduct. It's perhaps uh, the case, somebody, you know, somebody else might argue that perhaps it's just the case that the people of Boston are more attuned to the concept of liberty and their rights than perhaps the rest of the colonies are. And they seem to be targeted more fervently by the British crown than the rest of the colonies. 
but it also could be just a different attitude up there in Boston, as far as, as opposed to New York. Boston seems much more independent-minded. I wonder if the same thing could be said today of the people of Boston. It's interesting how populations change over time. An interesting study in the changes of a population over time would be a study of the people of Boston between 1774 and today. I believe a great shift has taken place between 1774 and today. And honestly, it wasn't even... To, I mean, you could probably say there was a great shift that took place between 1774 and roughly, I'm going to ballpark it, the 1930s, 1940s. Certainly by the 1950s, without a doubt. So what changed? What changed in Boston between then and now? It's an interesting question. I may address this on a uh, Patreon podcast, actually. So if you want to know the answer to that question, or at least what I think about the answer to that question, tune into the Patreon podcast that I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, this this episode. And I may very well get into that at some particular point, because it is an interesting study in, in a population of people. But continuing on, quote, By mentioning the word check, I don't mean to approve of all or scarce one of the measures lately exercised on New England. A charter should not be altered without the consent or consulting of the majority, of the people, or upon some very flagrant or violent occasion wherein the good of the whole is endangered. But even then, the consent of the whole ought to be obtained. No constitution, as I mentioned in my letter, should be altered unless the consent of every part concerned can be had. We have no right to alter our constitution without the consent of the king and parliament. For the same reason, none of our constitutions should be altered without our consent. For the parliament, according to the opinion of good civilians, have no right to alter the constitution of England without taking or obtaining a sanction from the voice of the people if it could be had. Because the constitution is fixed when the people's representatives are chosen, and therefore they must act according to it and cannot alter it, end quote. So he clarifies here. Although Mr. Henderson, as he refers to earlier, may believe the acts justified and the alteration of the charter justified, Mr. Fairfax clarifies here that he is not of the same opinion of Mr. Henderson. He fairly well agrees that the charter constitution should not be altered. And I'm going to read this again, quote, no constitution, as I mentioned in my letter, should be altered unless the consent of every part concerned can be had, end quote. I want you to think really hard on this. This is one of those moments where I want you to think about this while you're listening to this podcast episode, and then I want you to think about this after this podcast has ended. You don't have to, of course. This is just the opinion of the host. But this is one of those big-time conversations. You know, this... If you ever wanted to know the value of this podcast episode, this is this is it right here, right now, in this moment. Because part of my job on this podcast is to ask some tough questions so that we can have a discussion about it and figure out, okay, what does this mean? How does this apply? Because part of what we're doing here is not just the history of the Founding Fathers in these letters. That's That's a big part of it. But we're also trying to figure out what can we learn from this? And obviously, how do we apply these standards, these principles today that Mr. Fairfax is talking about? And by the way, just, uh, just out of curiosity, um, how many of you out there have heard of Brian Fairfax and his conversations with George Washington previous to this podcast. Probably none of you. Do you think this is valuable information? Do you think this is good information to have? Do you think that this is something that a citizen of the United States can use, this information that Mr. Fairfax is presenting to us? Do you think this is information that we can use to guide our decisions in the present day? 
Do you think you're better off as an American citizen, or if you're outside the United States, frankly, if you're living in Poland, for example, or if you're living in Germany, or if you're living in Ukraine? Is it important to know these principles? Does this does this add value to your life? You know, I, 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 I'll answer the question for myself. You know, before I read these letters from Brian Fairfax to George Washington and vice versa, I was well-equipped, but I was not as well-equipped as a, to be a citizen of the United States as I am having read these letters from Brian Fairfax. I am a better citizen today because I've read them. I truly believe that because I'm much more informed, more, more informed than I was before. Now, if you agree with me, you have a reason to continue to listen to this podcast, and you have a reason to share this podcast with other people. If you disagree with me, then you have absolutely zero reason to continue to listen to this podcast, and you have zero reason to share this podcast. And then the, the, the words of Brian Fairfax and George Washington will, will die a slow death in the shadow of history. But I don't think that's going to be the case. I think you'll see the value of it, maybe not quite as much as I do, but certainly on some level, and you'll, we'll continue to learn together why this is important. But let's get back to it. Quote, no constitution, as I mentioned in my letter, should be altered unless the consent of every part concerned can be had, end quote. He says no constitution, no constitution, not the British Constitution, not the Charter Constitution of Massachusetts, no constitution. This would include the Constitution of the United States of America today, should not be altered. And there's 50 other constitutions in the several states. No constitution should be altered. So what's the question? The question I have to ask you is, do you think our constitution has been altered without the consent of the people? Has the, since the founding of the country, there have been several amendments. There are 27 of them, to be precise. Now, those are changed. Those amendments are changes to the Constitution by the consent of the people through their representatives, through the ratification process. And we're going to talk about all that at some length later on. I'm not going to get into that stuff right now. But other than that, has the Constitution of the United States of America been changed without the consent of, quote, every part concerned, end quote. Or as he says later, quote, without taking or obtaining a sanction from the voice of the people if it could be had, end quote. You know, and there's a, there's a concept that a lot of people aren't aware of. This actually does pervade the, the legal system in our country. There is a thought amongst some people that the Constitution of the United States is actually not limited to the original text plus the, uh, the 27 amendments. It actually includes the text of the Constitution, the 27 amendments, and case precedent. Thousands of pages of case precedent. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of a, it's a, it's, it's, it's something referred to in, in certain circles as a legal creep. Uh, this concept that these, uh, these legal changes creep in over time. Uh, legal creep is not, not, to, not to be confused with a, uh, a creepy lawyer, uh, but actually the actual, you know, creep of law over time, legislation, no, not legislation, I should say, but, uh, legal changes outside the legislature. Or inside the legislature. So what, like, for example, what happens if a legislature passes a law that is either outside the bounds of the Constitution in the several states, or the federal Constitution for that matter? Uh, if a legislature passes a law that's outside the bounds of the Constitution, does that constitute a change to the Constitution without the consent of the people? I guess it depends on what the law is, but one can string together a logical argument that if a, if a state legislature does not operate within the bounds of its constitution, it is effectively changing the constitution. Uh, one, the same could be said for a judiciary. If a, if a court renders a verdict that is outside its constitutional jurisdiction, that affects constitutional rights, that's effectively a change to the constitution without the consent of every part concerned, as Mr. Fairfax would say. So the question is, has any of this happened in the last 200 years? 
Has it happened? Can you find an example of this? Can anybody else find an example of that happening? And the other question I would ask you is, is what's the difference between that and the intolerable acts of 1774? Which Mr. Fairfax here seems to contend is a change to the Constitution without the consent of every part concerned. Mr. Fairfax is giving you some wisdom here, and it's important to listen to Mr. Fairfax. And again, I'll, I'll ask this. I'll ask this question: Is any history professor in any university ever going to say those words to you? You need to listen to Mr. Fairfax on this issue. I sincerely doubt it. So, which do you think is the better place to study this information from, a university or Mr. Fairfax? Because I'm not. I'm not the professor here. I'm not the professor of this podcast. The professor of this po- this this podcast has a lot of visiting professors. A lot of visiting professors. And Mr. Fairfax is one of them. He's a guest on this podcast, as is Mr. Washington. So would you would you rather learn this information from some university professor who believes in God knows what, or would you rather learn this material from Mr. Fairfax? And if you'd rather learn this information from Mr. Fairfax, where in the world are you going to get that kind of information besides on this podcast? Good question to ask. Uh, let's continue on and see if Mr. Fairfax has any more words of wisdom with regards to what is going on here with this... Uh, situation. And Mr. There's a, there's a larger body of discussion that he has in this letter. By the way, this letter that Mr. Fairfax wrote is incredibly long. And I, yes, I did read the entire thing uh, a couple times. But what he did, I have to skip over some of this just for, just for time considerations and because it's, it's fairly complicated. But Mr. Fairfax went back into the original law governing the Virginia colony, and apparently some other colonies as well, some original information on the way these arrangements between the colonies and the king were set up way back when, before Mr. Fairfax was around. So this next section of the letter, we're going to be talking about what he has discovered in his research on this issue, basically whether or not there's some precedent for what's going on, and whether the king is justified in any way, or whether the colonists, like like those uh, in Boston, the ones who are upset, the rabble-rousers up north, are justified in what they're doing. So let's read this. Quote, When I have considered these disputes, I have often wished to know the sentiments of the first settlers here. In Captain Smith's history, there is mention of taxes by the Parliament, and someone in Virginia makes the same objections to it as we do at this day. End quote. And then continuing on a little bit later, quote, The Assembly petitioned the King to continue and even further to confirm the government under which they then lived. But if the government must be altered, they desired, and in their letter to the Lords of Council, they expressed a desire that the governors sent over might not have absolute authority, but might be restrained to the consent of the council, and that they might still retain the liberty of their general assemblies. This was the style and situation of our ancestors in the infancy of the colony, end quote. So what's he talking about here? Two things. Uh, taxes and representation. Isn't that interesting? What are we talking about this whole time? Taxation without representation? Mm-hmm. So he, he talks about uh, Captain Smith. Now, you might remember Captain Smith from history, uh, Jamestown Colony, the Virginia Company, etc. This guy goes way back. 1600s, roughly. So... Apparently, there was an issue with taxes with Parliament back then, and Captain Smith wrote about it, and there were some objections. Someone in Virginia made, quote, someone in Virginia makes the same objections to it as we do to this day, end quote, says Mr. Fairfax. That's interesting. So the the, the dispute 
over the taxes goes all the way back to Captain Smith. This is not new. This goes back. The people of Virginia, from the beginning, have held the belief that there is no right to tax them for the purposes of raising revenue such as they are doing at this particular time. 1774. That's interesting. See, again, because why is this important to know? There's going to be a lot of people today who tell you that the Founding Fathers just didn't want to pay their taxes. End of story. But they give you no detail as to the background of that. They give you no correspondence as to what the heck was actually going on. They give you no legal justification for anything that the king did, the colonists did, or anything. You're just not going to get this education anywhere else. It's not going to happen. Unless you tear into the letters and do the research yourself, which you could do. But again, why do that when I do it for you? So... Clearly, this is this is not this is again this is not George Washington, the angry George Washington, or the angry Sam Adams, just refusing to pay their taxes that were d- justifiably levied against them. No, this goes all the way back to the beginning. They weren't justifiably levied. That's the whole point. So the next time somebody comes up to you and says, "Oh, the founding fathers, a bunch of angry old people who didn't want to pay their taxes," really? Let me tell you about the taxes. Let me tell you about the. Let me tell you, Captain Smith and his boys back in the 1600s had a problem with this too. And Mr. Fairfax makes a brilliant argument of that back in 1774. And in this second section, he he talks about the assembly petitioning to the king. And I'm going to read a portion to this to you again to refresh your memory as to what we just covered. Quote, And in their letter to the lords of, of the council, they expressed a desire that the governors sent over might not have absolute authority, but might be restrained to the consent of the council. End quote. They're talking about their, uh, their, their representative assemblies. They clearly don't want some dictator governing the colonies. They want, it, they want it governed by council, by representation. And what did we learn from the, the Intolerable Acts of 1774? It was, one of those acts in particular was designed to shatter the local assemblies and the local representation of the people and to replace these councils and these assemblies with largely the king's men, people loyal to the king. Kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? Exactly. So Mr. Fairfax here is trying to demonstrate, and he does so very clearly, that these arguments go way back, way back. This is not new at all. Continuing on, quote, I am very sorry we happen to differ in opinion. I hope, however, that our sentiments will again coincide as in other matters, end quote. And continuing on, quote, if the end could be answered otherwise, it would be better. If there was virtue enough in the country to abstain from only half the goods commonly consumed, it might probably answer in a few years. If every man of influence would encourage his neighbor to persevere, perhaps we might hold out. End quote. And then continuing on again, quote, I am sorry to hear what you mention of General Gage. I did not imagine he had been so weak as to recall as to call resolutions not to trade with Great Britain by the name of treason. I must again apologize for this letter, hoping you'll excuse it, and believe that I am with great regard, dear sir, your most obedient servant, Brian Fairfax, end quote. Talking about a few things right here, he he, he wants to, he apologizes for disagreeing with Washington. Basically, he's trying to um, say to General Washington that their disagreement is, is born out of just a, you know, a, a basic difference of opinion. There's certainly no hard feelings on the part of Mr. Fairfax. And I don't believe there's any hard feelings on the part of Mr. Washington either, having read his letters. These are these are men that uh, have their opinions, and they may disagree in some regard, but it's not by much. They, they certainly agree in the basic fundamentals of the issue. Mr. Fairfax here made, made some good arguments that the acts are not justifiable. There is a long history in the colonies of having issue with the king taxing them, which he's not supposed to do, and of being governed by dictatorial fiat, 
instead of by counsel, by legislative counsel. Long history of this. Mr. Fairfax makes great argument. Mr. Fairfax is a very valuable part part of this conversation. A lot, you know, a lot can be had in, the, in these discussions uh, where, where two people, even if they disagree somewhat, there's uh, often some common ground to be found. And he, he says here in the second part, I'm going to read this to you again, quote, if the end could be answered otherwise, it would be better. If there was virtue enough in the country to abstain from only half the goods commonly consumed, it might probably answer in a few years. If every man of influence would encourage his neighbor to persevere, perhaps we might hold out, end quote. He's talking about the Non-Importation Act. So in other words, if they limit themselves in what they consume from Britain, this will hurt Britain. It'll hurt their commerce, and it will cause them to knuckle under and repeal these acts, hopefully. But they must persevere. And he, and he, he says, you know, quote, every man of influence would encourage his neighbor to persevere. Perhaps we might hold out, end quote. You have to encourage your neighbor to do the right thing. Obviously, if just a couple of people do this, it doesn't really matter now, does it? And I want you to think about that for a second. Let's let's say the central power of government issues some dictatorial fiat, like the King of England did here. If you were living during this time, do you suppose anything could be accomplished if just five or six people in any one area decided to uh, resist, to uh, respectfully uh, not participate in whatever dictatorial fiat came out of the central power? Probably not. Now, it would certainly benefit people in some regard. The merchants might make might lose some money. They might say, well, we don't want to participate because we'll lose some money. And then the next person says, well, I don't want to participate either because I'm going to lose some money. And then you get down to the bottom of the list, and there's really only five people who end up engaging in a non-importation agreement with uh, Great Britain, or I should say against Great Britain. What good is that? And Mr. Fairfax, without saying it, is making an argument that money isn't everything. Sometimes you have to engage in long-suffering to be able to get your point heard. Long-suffering. Otherwise, what are you doing? And when he talks here about General Gage, I'm sorry to hear what you mention. quote, I'm sorry to hear what you mention about General Gage. I did not imagine he had been so weak as to call resolutions not to trade with Great Britain by the name of treason, end quote. Well, of course he's going to call it treason. You know, when when a central power issues a, some dictate, he is going to call any disagreement to that uh, dictate, he's going to call it treason or something of the like. He's going to have a lot of disparaging words for the common folk who don't go along with his uh, little scheme that he's cooking up. Isn't that a common thing? Don't we see that all around the world? Politicians really are the same all around the world. You know, kings and tyrants really are the same all around the world. They're not really any different anywhere. They're varying degrees of the same thing, right? And these concepts are fairly common. You look hard enough, you'll see it. And that's a problem. It's a, it's a problem for, for General Gage in this case, who, by the way, he was a general at North in Massachusetts. General Gage is really there to try to lay the hammer down to the people of Massachusetts. Not exactly a good guy. He's always going to have harsh words for the colonists, apparently. Uh, at least he seems to. I mean, it kind of goes back and forth with that guy a little bit. But quite quite clearly, uh, over over the line here, referring to it as treason, a non-importation agreement. That's, that's not it at all. But that is the letter from uh, Brian Fairfax. So let's segue on over to the letter from General Washington. Of course, at this time, not General Washington, but just George Washington. And this letter was written back to Brian Fairfax from Mount Vernon, Washington's home, on the 24th of August, 1774. And I quote, In truth, persuaded as I am that you have read all the political pieces which compose a large share of the Gazette at this time, I should think it but for your request a piece of inexcusable arrogance in me to make the least essay towards a change in your political opinions. 
For I am sure I have no new lights to throw upon the subject, or any other arguments to offer in support of my own doctrine than what you have seen, and could only in general add that an innate spirit of freedom first told me that the measures which administration hath for some time been and now are most violently pursuing are repugnant to every principle of nature natural justice, whilst much abler heads than my own hath fully convinced me that it is not only repugnant to natural right, but subversive of the laws and constitution of Great Britain itself, and the establishment of which some of the best blood in the kingdom hath been spilt. End quote. He's basically saying that he's made his case, and he doesn't really have much more to add to it than that. But he's resolved, and he's convinced in the wrong of what Great Britain is doing. And again, he's in this. In, he's convinced that the taxation of the colonies is wrong. These acts are certainly wrong. We've talked a lot about that taxation without representation. Um, and again, it's not so much that they didn't want to pay their taxes. They just didn't believe that the taxes levied by the parliament were legal. And this is an interesting actual historical note in the United States as well, uh, after the revolution. A lot of folks don't know this, but did you know that at one point in time, the income tax, or at least some components of the income tax that were levied back in the late 1800s, were declared unconstitutional by the United States Supreme Court. I believe Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust. That was a case where taxes were being levied. A case was brought before the court saying that this is illegal and unconstitutional, effectively that the federal government had committed an illegal act. We don't like to say that. We, we, we call it unconstitutional or extra-constitutional or something of that nature. It makes it sound better, but really what it is is it's the United States Congress and the federal government committing an illegal act and breaking the law. And the Supreme Court agreed, in part, that it was indeed illegal. This was in 1895, I believe. It's the same argument that the Founding Fathers were making. It's no different. Founding Fathers are saying that what the what the Parliament of Great, do, Great Britain is doing was illegal. The only problem was is they didn't have a Supreme Court to go to to actually adjudicate this thing for them. Not not one that would actually do anything about it. I mean, they wrote to the king. They, they, they wrote petitions like Mr. Fairfax talks about and all the rest of it. But the king basically just threw them in the trash receptacle. He didn't care. So what is... And isn't that interesting? I mean, what happens... When a central power, a parliament, a legislature does something illegal, and there's historical precedent for this, both in Great Britain and in the United States, the United States committed an illegal act when it levied those taxes back in the 1890s, and the Supreme Court said this is illegal. What happens when the government commits an illegal act, and there's no recourse, there's no way that you can approach the issue legally because your petitions are thrown in the garbage? What do you do? Because governments are really oftentimes very much very much wanting to do that kind of thing. Again, there's a lot of tyrannical governments that have existed throughout history, and people have often petitioned these governments, uh, often and often told, we don't care, the king doesn't care, the tyrant doesn't care. So what do you do in a situation where your petitions are thrown in the garbage? It's an important question to ask. This case back in the 1890s where the Supreme Court de declared uh, some portion of the income tax unconstitutional illegal, what would have happened when... That case was brought before the court and a petition filed, and the, the court dismissed it. They didn't even hear the case. They just dismissed the case and didn't even hear it. And they said, well, you know, you can follow all the petitions you want to. We're, we're dismissing the case. We're not going to hear it. Goodbye. It's the same thing as what the king did, throwing the petition in the garbage can. Is it not? Or is it? Is it or is it not? It's an interesting thing to think about because, again, we're trying to learn from history here. We're trying to learn what the Founding Fathers went through, and we're trying to understand it. It's important for us to think about these things in every context 
Not just not just precisely what the founding fathers were going about. Because again, what am I trying to? What have I, what have I, what have I said before? You think these things can't happen again? Because the the people who don't study history, I, I made a comment in a remark on the introduction to this podcast that the study of history has been abandoned, and there's reasons for it. Eh, it's too boring. Eh, it's not important anymore. A lot of people think they have nothing to learn from history. And if that's true, then what Mr. Fairfax and Mr. Washington say are really not important. We might as well just take these letters and just burn them. No point in keeping them. But I think that there is something to be learned from history because, you know, these things happen over and over and over again. Tyrannical governments do today the same exact things that they did 5,000 years ago. There's literally not a single difference. They all do the same stuff. So in order to avoid these things happening again, in order to avoid a situation where the king takes your petitions and throws them in the trash can, and then leaves you in a position where General Washington and Mr. Fairfax here are engaged in lively debate about the their rights being trampled upon. In order to avoid that, we probably ought to understand how this happened and understand that it can happen again. It can. It's very possible. And it happened, again, taxation without representation, changing the Constitution without the consent of the people. It happened in, 18, in the 1890s with the income tax. And the Supreme Court said, this is illegal. So you think it can't happen again? It scarcely took a hundred years for the United States government to do it, according to the Supreme Court. That's not me saying that. That's the Supreme Court saying that. Again, I'm just the messenger here. I don't make this stuff up. You think it can't happen in 2021, 2025, 2035? If you don't think it can happen, I think you're wrong. Now, after the, after the Supreme Court declared that unconstitutional, a number of years unconstitutional, a number of years later, the government came in and uh, ratified the 16th Amendment to the United States Constitution, and that clarified. The income tax, right? They clarified what the government wanted to do as far as levying taxes beyond what the Constitution already allowed because the government felt it needed to levy additional taxes beyond what it already allowed. Okay, so there's a method for that. You do it through the constitutional process. You get the consent of the people, the representatives, and everything's good and fine and dandy. But every once in a while, the government decides to get a little bit sneaky, and they try to slip one under the radar, and they try to break the law, just like Brian Fairfax and Washington are talking about here. And if you don't understand the history of these things, because think about what Brian Fairfax did. When he wanted to understand the current situation of the colonies in 1774, he went back to Captain Smith and his journals, talking about taxes and complaints back in the Virginia colony way back when. And he talked about also correspondence regarding the governor's and the assemblies, etc. He went back to history to figure out what to do in his day. Just like we have to go back in history to figure out what are we going to do today, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, etc. How else are we going to know? And if, and, if, and if folks don't listen to this podcast or otherwise consume this kind of information by spending, you know, a couple of decades in a library reading these books and these letters, how do you how do, how do they even function as a citizen of the United States? I don't know. It's incumbent upon all of us to gather this information and share this information. This podcast is a way for us to aggregate this information in a very digestible format and then distribute it out to people who need it. I encourage you to do so. Share the podcast another. And I'm not just saying that for selfish reasons. Do I, I really believe that there is a, a kind of civic duty here, uh, which is part of the reason why I do this. I mean, I'm a, I'm a working man just like a lot of you folks out there. I, I have a day job, and it takes a great deal of time for me to do this on top of that. 
And part of that is the fact that I really do believe this information is very valuable. Because as I'm reading over it in my private life, I've been I've been doing this for years. This isn't something I decided to do, you know, when I was bored on a Tuesday afternoon a couple of months ago when I started this podcast. I've been doing this for years. And I thought to myself one day, man, I really need to share this stuff because this is some good stuff. And here I am. So let's continue with this. Let's Let's discuss this a little bit more in depth. Quote, Satisfied, then, that the acts of a British Parliament are no longer governed by the principles of justice, that it is trampling upon the valuable rights of Americans, confirmed to them by charter and the Constitution they themselves boast of, and convinced beyond the smallest doubt that these measures are the result of deliberation and attempted to be carried into extension by the hand of power, is it a time to trifle or risk our cause upon petitions? which with difficulty obtain access and afterward are thrown by with the utmost contempt? Or should we, because heretofore unsuspicious of design and then unwilling to enter into disputes with the mother country, go on to bear more and forbear to enumerate our just causes of complaint? For my own part, I shall not undertake to say where the line between Great Britain and the colonies should be drawn. But I am clearly of opinion that one ought to be drawn, and our rights clearly ascertained. I could wish, I own, that the disputes had been left to posterity to determine, but the crisis has arrived when we must assert our rights, end quote. He's very determined, George Washington, very determined. And he's clear. This is, this is deliberate by the Parliament. He's been saying it over and over and over again through these letters. This is a deliberate act by the Parliament. This isn't stupidity. This isn't arrogance. This isn't uh, maybe arrogance, but it's not stupidity. It's not ignorance. Maybe arrogance, but not ignorance. These people know exactly what they're doing, precisely what they're doing. And that's the problem, people, isn't it? When they know exactly what they are doing. And Washington is convinced that a line must be drawn. That's what he says. Quote, For my own part, I shall not undertake to say where the line between Great Britain and the colonies should be drawn, but I am clearly of opinion that one ought to be drawn. End quote. He's ready to draw a line in the sand. This man is ready to go to town. I've said it before. And how many of us in this same position, like transport yourself back to 1774, how many of us in this same position would be willing to, would be so determined as, as George Washington? I said it before that, you know, I, I, I find it hard to believe that most Americans would even be willing to sacrifice their Netflix subscription to fight for their rights. It's a good thing George Washington didn't have Netflix back in the day. Otherwise, I figure he probably would have kicked his feet up and just did a whole lot of nothing. And don't even get me started with Brian Fairfax. I mean, that guy would have been, whew, he would have been, he would have been completely a lost cause. And think about this line, quote, I own that the dispute had been left to posterity to determine, but the crisis has arrived when we must ass assert our rights, end quote. If Washington feels this way, that is to say, if he wishes, if he has some feeling that he had hoped that this fight would be left to posterity, any lesser person would certainly feel the same. This is the kicking the can down the road syndrome. Um, you know, George Washington had a pretty good life. He was happily married to a great woman, had a great farm that he was, uh, that he had command over. This man really thoroughly enjoyed tending to his crops. This man, I tell you, I've read some letters from this guy. I mean, I have to go through a lot of letters to find this stuff. I mean, you have no idea the number of letters that I have to go through. And this man wrote more about his crops than he wrote about probably anything else leading up to the war. I mean, this man, it was, it was all about his crops for the most part. People wrote to him about his crops, and he wrote to people about his crops. And I'm sure this guy would have been perfectly happy just tending to his crops, spending time with his family, instead of taking to the field. This is obviously later on in 1775, taking to the field to go to war. 
and getting shot at and darn near killed several times and spending almost the entire war in the field. He almost never went back to Mount Vernon, by the way. This guy was in the field for a long, long time. You know, that, that, that thing we do nowadays where a general might go in theater for a little while and then kind of bounce back to, you know, wherever his uh, his command headquarters is, whether it's Central Command out of Florida or wherever. Yeah, that's not George Washington. I mean, this guy was out there for a while. Years. So it's very common for people to feel this way. Kick the can down the road. Let's leave it to posterity to figure this stuff out. No, no point in me doing it. I got, I got other stuff to do. I got to tend to my crops. Washington could have said that, and I'm sure a lot of people were thinking it back in the day. Thank goodness they didn't follow through with that. They actually did something. I mean, we're all the beneficiaries of that. A great many people in this country and around the world have lived free. They have freedom because George Washington did not kick the can down the road. I mean, if he would have kicked the can down, kicked the can down the road, would anybody have ever had this fight? Would the next generation have had this fight? Would the war have happened in 1815 instead of 1775? I doubt it. Or maybe 1852? The war would have started? No, probably not. Probably just would have lingered on forever and ever under the thumb of that godforsaken king in England. So he risked it all. I mean, keep in mind, keep in mind also that the founding fathers had every reason in the world to kick the can down the road. They had a lot to lose. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them. I mean, George Washington had everything to lose. He had he had his crops and his farm and his family. It all could have been taken from him. He could have been hung for treason. He could have been shot on the battlefield more times than anybody could probably remember. And instead, he didn't kick the can down the road. He went out to the field of battle. He did get shot at. He put it all on the line, risked everything more than once, and now here we are. He did the same thing when he became president. This man was world famous by the time he was done fighting the war. Everybody, everybody who was anybody knew who George Washington was in, in, in Western society. And he was hugely popular. His popularity was just unbelievable. There, there's, no, there's no equal to that in, in American history, in my opinion. And then what? He goes and he, he becomes president. And some people might think, well, that, that's, well, that's what you do. You go and you run for president. Keep in mind, people didn't run for president back then to become rich like they do today. People run for president today to, get, to become millionaires, to get piles of money. And no, that's not me being partisan political. It's just a fact. Just, I mean, open your eyes, people. Rub a couple of brain cells together. You'll see it right in front of you. It's about money. George Washington didn't do it for the money because you didn't make money as president of the United States back then. You did not make money doing it. And he had everything to lose again. His popularity. I mean, a couple of bad decisions as president. His popularity is right out the window. He's risking everything. His, 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 his newfound popularity, his reputation, everything is on the line when he becomes president of the United States. But he did it anyway. Why? Because the country needed him to do it because there was nobody else who could hold it together. He was the only man alive who could hold this country together. It was always at risk of falling apart. So delicate. And it had to be held together just right by the right guy at the right time. Otherwise... All that freedom that was fought, that was fought for, all all the all the great things that were won and yet to come. By the way, this was not the end of the fight. There was more to come later on down the road. All of it was lost. The potential was lost. So that's why he did it. Understand that it wasn't for selfish reasons. Again, if you want, if you think George Washington was president of the United States for selfish reasons, you're thinking you're thinking in a 21st century mindset. You're thinking this is this is that's 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 modern political ideology overlaid on top of history. That's not what that's not what these people did back then. Eventually, the presidency became that. It became about the money. It became about other things. But it wasn't that when Washington was around. It just wasn't that way. Keep that in mind when you think of General Washington. 
He wasn't like the rest of them, and neither were any of the early presidents, by the way, be it Adams or Jefferson, etc. Let's continue on and finish this letter up. Quote, I intended to have wrote no more than an apology for not writing, but I find I am insensibly running into a length I did not expect, and therefore I shall conclude with remarking that, if you disavow the right of Parliament to tax us, unrepresented as we are, we only differ in respect to the mode of opposition, and this difference principally arises from your belief that they, the Parliament I mean, want a, dis a decent opportunity to repeal the acts. Whilst I am fully convinced as I am of my own existence, that there has been a regular systemic plan formed to enforce them, and that nothing but unanimity in the colonies, a stroke they did not expect, and firmness can prevent it. It seems from the best advices from Boston that General Gage is exceedingly discontented at the quiet and steady conduct of the people of Massachusetts Bay, and at the measures pursuing by the other governments, as I dare say he expected to have forced those pressed people into compliance, or irritated them to acts of violence before this, for a more colorful pretense of ruling that and the other colonies with a high hand. But I am done. I shall set off Wednesday next for Philadelphia, whither. If you have any commands, I shall be glad to oblige you in them. Being, dear sir, with real regard, George Washington." End quote. So he reiterates basically what Brian Fairfax was saying as well, that they really only disagree as far as the the action to be taken. Fairfax and Washington are fairly well in agreement that Parliament cannot do legally what it is doing. It's illegal. It is illegal. They have broken the law. So there, believe it or not, there are some people out there who think that governments cannot break the law. Isn't that interesting? That because a government does something, it's legal? It's an interesting thought. I don't know how people get to the point where they actually believe that kind of crap, but they do. And he says here again, quote, nothing but unanimity in the colonies and firmness can prevent it, end quote. So he's saying the colonies have to be together. And where's, where's George Washington on his way to? Quote, I shall set off Wednesday next for Philadelphia, end quote. What was happening in Philadelphia? The Congress, right? This is where George Washington, Sam Adams, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and the boys get together. They start hashing it out. There's another interesting point here I want to touch on, and it's this last, towards the last end of this uh, statement that he made. Quote, General Gage is exceedingly discontented at the quiet and steady conduct of the people of Massachusetts Bay, and at the measures pursuing by other governments. As I dare say, he expected to have forced the oppressed people into compliance, or irritated them to acts of violence before this, for a more colorable pretense of ruling that and the other colonies with a high hand, end quote. So he's saying that ideally General Gage was looking for two outcomes with his martial law, military presence in the colonies and especially in Massachusetts. He wanted to force the people into compliance, basically get them to shut up and go along to get along, or he wanted to irritate them to, quote, acts of violence, end quote. Interesting. One extreme or the other. He wanted to force them into compliance, or he wanted them to get violent so that he had an excuse to come down with a heavy hand and start shooting people. That's what he wants. I want to say that one more time. General Gage wanted violence so that he would have an excuse to shoot at the people of Boston. This is the very act of a tyrant, ladies and gentlemen, to incite a group of people to violence, so that you would have the opportunity to shoot at them, is the worst kind of tyrannical act a government or a military can engage in. It is the worst. There really isn't anything worse than that, aside from just the outright torture and massacre of the people, of course. But the people of Boston have disappointed General Gage. 
What does General Washington say here? Quote, General Gage is exceedingly disconcerted at the quiet and steady conduct of the people of Massachusetts Bay and at the measures pursuing by other governments, end quote. What are they doing? What are the people of Massachusetts Bay doing? They are standing firm on their rights, and they are not backing down on this. They are saying, you do not have the right to tax us. This is illegal. The other colonies are getting together. Where is George Washington headed again? Philadelphia. The other colonies are getting together. The county at Fairfax just met, right? Fairfax County, George Washington and Brian Fairfax have been talking all along about this meeting in Fairfax County where they're talking about this very issue. Colonies are getting together and they're forming their arguments and they're standing firm. You do not have the right to do this. Back down, Parliament. Back down. That's very interesting. Think on that. Stew on that. Think about it. For anybody who tries to deliver a fake history to you about the Founding Fathers, just a bunch of crazy old people didn't want to pay their taxes, and they had their guns, and they just started spraying, they started shooting at the government, at General Gage and his soldiers, total crap. By this time, the colonists had fair reason to start shooting at General Gage and his soldiers. Their rights had been trampled upon, their petitions had been thrown by the wayside, according to George Washington. It's probably reason enough to start shooting at General Gage and his troops, but they didn't do it. But they did stand firm. They did take action. They did do something. George Washington did not kick the can down the road. He got up off his rear end and he marched himself up to Philadelphia. All right. Well, that concludes the letters for the time being between Brian Fairfax and George Washington. After this, in the next episode, we are going to be moving on to more letters. And we're going to be learning even more about what was going on during this particular time period. And it's not going to be the stuff the history professors are going to teach you. Public school is not going to teach you any of this stuff. They're going to gloss over it. They're going to ignore it. They're going to do what they do. That's why you have this podcast. That's why we have it. So that we can finally, finally, at long last, discover the real conversation that was happening at the time. Without all the missing pieces that cause us to just, you know, think of, well, taxation without representation, but what, what does that mean really? What was really going on? What's the background of that? And all the rest of it. We're going to get a full dose of this stuff here. So let's let's wrap up this podcast here in the next section as we begin to move on to the next letters that we're going to cover. Let's close this out next section. We have arrived at the end of the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're still with me, if you're still listening to this podcast, I want to thank you for that. Thank you for continuing to listen to this podcast all the way through. This was a long one. I don't know what the final cut is going to be. Uh, probably something around about an hour. Uh, so I think I might be able to I think I might be able to keep it under just an hour. But um, I hope you enjoyed this conversation between Fairfax and Washington. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's like sitting in the room listening to two of the founding fathers actually have the conversation that started it all. That's a valuable insight to have. And tell me what you think about all this. You know, I, I am, really am eager to uh, to hear back from you folks about this, you know, so leave a review on this podcast if, uh, if you can, wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast. Apple Podcasts, I know, is good for that. A few of the other podcasting platforms are. Uh, if you can't leave a review there, go over to the Patreon side, patreon.com slash podcasts with Roman. And of course, uh, if you subscribe over there, you can comment all day long on the uh, various podcasts and other information that I'm cranking out over there. We're going to learn, you know, in, in, in days, weeks, and months to come that it took a certain kind of person to build this country from the ground up. 
It really did. George Washington was one of those people. Brian Fairfax as well, in some regard. Many others. And these are the, the men that created the Declaration of Independence and ultimately the Constitution of the United States. And if you want to keep the Constitution of the United States, and I hope you do, I'm sure anybody listening to this podcast certainly does, then we probably have to try to be, not exactly, but roughly the same kind of people that built it. Otherwise, it may very well... Uh, falter in some particular kind of way because we simply don't understand it. How can you understand it if you don't have some piece of these men who came before us within you? Uh, Some part of their intellect, their wisdom, their understanding of history and the present day as they saw it. And if you want to educate your children, the next generation, uh, about these things, uh, you have to gather up this knowledge. We all do. I mean, I, I certainly do. Uh, we have to gather up this knowledge and we have to carry it forward. Podcast is very valuable for that purpose. It can help inform you on the true history of where it is that we come from. There's not gonna, there's no real other motive here on this podcast besides just the real history. When somebody's teaching history, oftentimes you have to ask yourself, what's their motivation? Because there are people out there who have really bizarre motives when it comes to teaching history. They really do. Uh, I've mentioned this before on prior podcasts, you know, the manipulation of history to try to make it make it what you want it to be. And I've said it before, history is not at all what you want it to be. It simply is what it is. And that's what we're here to learn. We're here to learn what it really was in 1774 and beyond, all the way up through the founding of the country. So I look forward to the next episode of this podcast with you folks. I truly do. And I hope you can join me then on the next episode. And we're going to keep marching forward. We're going to keep up. We're going to keep up this momentum and we're going to keep some good information coming your way, keep a good product for you. So it's worth your time. It's my persistent goal to create a good product so that your time is not wasted at all listening to this podcast. Uh, some podcast episodes, I'm sure, will be better than others. But uh, good news, you know, if, if one doesn't particularly uh, strike you as being a good podcast, there's always going to be another one around the corner, at least for the foreseeable future. So uh, stay tuned to the podcast. And with that, this is Roman signing out.